You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. If you've been paying attention to the last two weeks, you noticed that Michael uh, has preached about fundamental truths that we use as a roadmap. We start off with knowing Jesus. We move on to uh, believing the gospel, and this week I'm going to be preaching on loving people. It may not have occurred to you that those go in order. Uh, that for us, it's an important thing that you understand as a church what our uh, philosophy of ministry is, but also the priorities that drive that. Knowing Jesus, it is something we do when we come to salvation. We come to know Jesus in a personal way. That he really is our Savior, that he is not just the Savior of the world, but he's also our personal Savior, that we know him in salvation. And then after that moment of salvation, until we come home to him in heaven, and then he remakes earth here on earth, or remakes the earth, that we're going to know him by faith every day. That we're going to grow in our knowledge and in our experience of who Jesus is. Okay, but also that we're learning the language of the gospel, this good news, this historical fact that the Son of God came, that he lived a perfect life, and that he laid down that perfect life as a sacrifice in our place, that he bore our shame on the cross, that he took our punishment, and that he traded places with us, and so that we have a new language to learn. It's the language of finished work in Jesus. And that we no longer have to perform and we no longer have to hide uh, from God or from others or from ourselves because we have a Savior. And we're getting to learn, we're getting to know what it means uh, to learn the gospel and live as those who are no longer slaves. Those two things matter, right? That we would know Jesus, but that we would also believe the gospel. And out of that would flow something else, a love for people. A love that grows for people, that God has placed me around particular neighbors, that he's placed you around co-workers, that he's placed you in certain rhythms of life where you're going to see the same people maybe at the, at the grocery store, at the checkout, um, or that you're going to be at the same bank, and you're going to start to know people, and you're going to start to love those people because the love of God living inside of us longs to attach to and draw people in to salvation, and so... Today we're going to be talking about loving people, and if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 12. It's going to be kind of a familiar passage for some of you. This is, uh, if you look at it, we're deep into the gospel of Mark, okay? And Mark is um, telling us what's happening at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, in Mark 12, he's uh, within one week of going to the cross. And so you can feel the tension growing. You can feel the intensity uh, coming to a boil, right? And so in Mark chapter 12, you have Jesus uh, telling the parable of the tenants. And then after that, talks about paying uh, taxes to Caesar. This is where we get the famous uh, separation of church and state here in America, which is so often misunderstood from this text. But that's another sermon for another day. There are some Sadducees who begin to argue with Jesus about the resurrection. 
Uh, Sadducees are a what we would call, in, in our understanding, they are the political elites of their day. They are uh, wealthy. They are in a good relationship with Rome. Okay, they're over. They, they're they're happy to have Rome there because Rome allows them to keep their seat of authority at the temple. And so they are the spiritual liberals of their day, if you want to say it that way. They don't believe in the afterlife, and they don't believe in the resurrection. And so it's a strange combination of them having great authority and power as uh, the Sanhedrin, part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, and having control over what happens inside the temple. And yet they're always arguing with Jesus. In fact, before Jesus, they were arguing with the Pharisees. And so when we pick it up in uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 26, it says these words, pardon me, verse 27, it says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing, them meaning the Sadducees, disputing with one another and Jesus, and seeing that Jesus had answered them well, this scribe asked Jesus the question, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important of all is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. There is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw, and when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, No one dared to ask him any more questions. And this is the word of God. There's so much going on here, but if you'll pay attention to what's just happened, this uh, scribe, who would be considered a Pharisee, the scribes and the Pharisee are within one party. The Pharisees are not all bad guys. Uh, They're not in full agreement or much agreement at all with the Sadducees. They're more the party of the common man. Uh, They believe, and in fact, this guy that's coming up to him is, uh, is like a Bible scholar. He has very likely memorized all of the first five books of the Bible. He's likely memorized all of the Psalms, the Proverbs, and large passages of the prophets. And so as he comes up hearing this argument between Jesus and the Sadducees, uh, it says that after hearing that Jesus answered the Sadducees in a wise way and seeing that he'd answered them well, The scribe comes up and says, which is the most important commandment of all? It's like saying there are 613 Old Testament commandments. Which one's the most important? This is a guy that would be so very well versed in Old Testament commandments. The 613 commandments, of them, there are 365 thou shalt nots. And there are 248 thou shalt. So some, some negative, some positive. And he says, of all of this, what's the most important one? 
Now here's a man who is likely extremely intelligent. He's likely someone who's very important and well-respected in Israel. He overhears this dispute, seeing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, which is probably not an easy task to do. I mean, he's probably thinking, man, good job, because nobody can get them to stop talking. And look, Jesus has answered them wisely. And so he says, and it seems to be with a good heart, which one is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered him from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, I'm going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I just want you to listen as I read this. If you were raised in church, some of this is going to seem familiar to you. But let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Jesus is quoting to him. It's called the Shema, okay? It's a very important passage, even today in Israel. So let me read what Jesus is quoting from in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, why does that matter? What does it mean, the Lord is one? In context of what Jesus is saying and what is happening here in Deuteronomy, they are just coming out of Egyptian polytheism, many gods, right? Uh, The Nile River is a god. Uh, Pharaoh is a god. And so they're coming out of polytheism, and he says, There's not many gods. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Not many, uh, but one God. And it didn't just mean that there was one God and, and, and that you should recognize that there's not many gods. It was more than that. It was saying that our God, the God of Israel, is preeminent. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the giver and sustainer of life, the one true living God is our God. And so, verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk with them when you sit in your house, and when you walk on the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, And they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house, on your gates. Let me stop for a second. If you go to Israel right now, you will find people, especially as you go up to Temple Mount, with these phylacteries, these things over around their head, and a box inside. And inside that little tiny box, these words are written. When you go in almost every single house and every single door, you'll see a little brass thing that's right on the door frame, and it looks like a lock. I thought it was a lock. It's not a lock. It's a little tiny scroll with these words written inside of it. And what he says is, you need to remember this, that our God is one, and you need to teach this to your children as you go, as you're living your life. You need to teach your children these things. Listen to what else he says in Deuteronomy. When the Lord, verse 10, brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and the houses full of good things that you did not fill and the cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God, and you shall fear him. 
you shall serve, uh, and, and, pardon me, him you shall serve, and by him you shall swear. And you will not go after other gods and the, of the, uh, the people around you, for the Lord your God is in the midst of you, and he is a jealous God. So when Jesus answers this scribe, what is the most important of all of the Old Testament commands? He goes right back to Deuteronomy. And that's the greater context. He says, listen, you want to know what's the top? You want to know what's the most important thing? Here it is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Lord our God is one, one God, and he is preeminent. He is king of all. He is ruler and sustainer of all, sovereign over all the earth. And you have to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love God. Love him. It's not a, it's not a suggestion. This is a command. You're, you're supposed to love him. And it says, with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Now, let me talk about what I understand this to be. The height of all the commands is to love God with 100% of your being, everything in you, Uh, the inner part of who you are, your heart, your soul, right? This inner part, this inner man inside of you. You ever seen a loved one at a funeral uh, that was deceased and there is their body and yet it's them, but it's not them. They're there, but they're not there. And you can feel this, though their body is them, and you could see it at my dad's funeral. And walking up, I always hesitate to reach out and touch the hand of someone that I love that has passed away, because I know what's coming. I don't like the feeling of that coldness. It is my dad, but it's not my dad, right? Because the inner person is gone, and he's there, but he's not there. That inner man that, he's, that, that, that we recognize when we see when it's gone is called death, when the body and the soul are departed. He says the inner man, you've got to love God with every fiber of your inner being, 100%. Love God with your heart, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That you would use your brain, your intellect, your seeking heart and mind to understand and love God deeper and fuller with all of your mind. And if that weren't enough, love him with all your strength, with all of your ability, love God. Don't make the mistake of thinking this is just emotional. This is so much more than that. Love God. Now, for us, that's like a mountain that we just can't climb. We would love to be able to take on a task like that. I I like what Pastor Michael said last week about what is your plan to stop yelling at your kids? I'm going to stop loving, I'm going to stop yelling at my kids. Yeah. Okay. What's your plan to be more patient? I'm going to start being more patient. (laughs) No, you're not. You're really not. You've tried and failed, right? Now you've got a command here. In fact, it's the greatest of all the commands. Love God, every bit of you, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love him 100%. It's the greatest of the commands, and it's not a suggestion. What else? The second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Huh. All right. That's less theoretical. That's, that's like real practical. How do I, let's just start with how do I love myself? I, 
it turns out I love myself with great care. <laughs> I, I thought about this a little bit. If I'm going to love my neighbors myself, let's just start with the fact that I really do give myself the benefit of the doubt every time. I'm patient with me. If there's a seat when we travel that's better, I make sure I get it because I love me. I love me some Robert, right? If there's food left and I want a portion of it, I make sure I get it, right? We, we look after ourselves. We get enough sleep. For ourselves, we take care of ourselves. We take care of getting our interests met. We take score and make sure that we get credit for what we do. We're not going to let somebody cheat us because we love ourselves. We look after ourselves with great care, with great consistency. Uh, we're very intentional about loving ourselves, seeing that no one takes advantage of us, making sure that we always get what we need. Those kinds of things are quite natural to us, right? taking care of ourselves, nourishing ourselves, protecting ourselves. He says, okay, do that with your neighbor. Make sure they get enough to eat. Make sure they get enough rest. Make sure they get credit for what they meant to say instead of what they did say. Give them credit for their intentions. Give them credit for uh, the work. Make sure they get what they need. Take care of them. Love them like you love you, right? Love God with your whole heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the great commands. They're not suggestions. I don't know what expression this man wore on his face as he gave this next response, but I suspect knowing as a scribe what he knew, that the sound of the, the voice of truth resonating in the answer of Jesus, that this man looked down and bowed his head knowing you're right, and I'm in trouble. Because listen to what he says. There's no other command than the scribe. Let's see, verse 32 says, The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one. There is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. See what he just said? <laughs> I'm a religious man, and I've done a lot of burnt offerings and a lot of sacrifices, and what you're telling me is absolutely right. First, God is preeminent, and to love him is right. It's appropriate. It's what ought to happen. To love him fully is absolutely right. And to love neighbor more as oneself, this is true, and it's right, and it's more than all all of the religious activities that I could do, all of the sacrifices, all the burnt offerings, this is better and this is more. You know, that last week when I was uh, in upstate New York with my family, excuse me, I had a couple of moments where I realized I was kind of in over my head and I didn't want to admit it. And there, there was twice, in fact. Um, one was going up Panther Mountain. Uh, now, these are the Adirondack Mountains, and so they're not like Colorado Mountains. They're shorter than that. But we were climbing up Panther Mountain, and we get out of the car. We vanish into this. You can park right beside it, and you kind of just take this little trail. No idea where it's, it's like wooded completely. And you take this little trail, and as you go, there's little markers that tell you you're still on the trail. And I'm... Um, 
I just haven't done a ton of uh, hiking, you know, it's, it's not something I've done a lot of. But here's the interesting thing. It started off just fine. Uh, 40 feet into it, I knew that I had bit off more than I could chew. Going up this thing that was just like, I, I mean, it's just straight up. And it's wooded everywhere. You don't know... I didn't know how much further we had to go, and it was fine for the first few steps. I'm telling you that once we got into it, I realized I was in over my head. My two 14-year-olds are just cruising up the mountain, right? And then Hope was in after them, and, and Elizabeth and Grace, and Monica and I in the back. And I'm the guy, I'm the guy in the back, huffing and puffing, feeling like my heart's about to explode. And I, <laughs> here's one thing. I didn't want to be the guy that said, hey, can we take a break because I'm about to die? But quietly, everybody was feeling this. Even my little athletic 14-year-old, almost 15-year-old kids, they were feeling it too. And finally, about halfway up, we didn't know how far halfway it was because I'd never done this climb before. Someone, I think it was Hope, said to Grace, Gracie, are you doing okay? Do you need to take a break? And Grace was fine. Like she wasn't, like, she wasn't saying anything. Everybody seized on that moment to go, yeah, Grace, I mean, if it, we're happy to stop for you. We're, we, we're happy to stop so you can get some rest. We're happy to not keep going. It turns out everybody was quietly dying, but nobody really wanted to say it. And my kids will even tell you now, I wasn't dying. I was just fine. Right. It just felt like at the front end, I could do it. And we did. <laughs> we made it. Once I got going, it just got a lot harder. Friends, do you hear this? Loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Okay, first few steps of it, you kind of go, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I genuinely think I can do this. This is ascending up a hill that I think I could climb. Yeah, you think that because you haven't done it yet. And as you try, you'll do fine. You, you start off like a house on fire. And then you're going to realize you're in way over your head. You don't love God with all your heart. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. You can start off trying and it feels like it's possible, but it's not long before you find yourself saying, I can't do this. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. The, sec the second time that I really felt an uh-oh moment was when we were climbing up Whiteface Mountain, much higher, much taller. The mistake I made with Whiteface was you drive 99% of the way up Whiteface. Then you get out of your car and you've got a thousand feet more to go. There's like these little castle-like structures on top of Whiteface. One is where you can park your car and it's got a gift shop. It's got a place to buy cold beverages that are pale and fizzy and, and so I thought well I'll, I'll grab one of these to go up the rest of the way so I can sit on top and enjoy the view big mistake white face you think because I'm driving most of the way the last bit I can make this uh, listen it, it was the same type of thing it was just like exhausting you know and so we made it to the top and it was awesome the view but I had this consistent feeling I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I started off on this trek. Walking with God, uh, you're gonna think you can do it sometimes. You're gonna think that you have the juice in the tank to love God, to love people. And then you're gonna encounter your own wicked heart. 
and you're going to find yourself in over your head. And that look on this man's face, I suspect the scribe, as he says, you're right. Loving God and loving neighbor is much more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is a dejected man who knows he can't ascend that hill. He can't make it up that. On his own strength, he's not going to be able to love God or love people. That's why what happens next is beautiful. Please listen to this and, and pay attention to what the response is when this man's downcast face is now looking at the mud. And he says in verse 34, when Jesus saw him, that he answered wisely, Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Strange, isn't it? Here's a man who apparently of good motive comes and asks Jesus, what's the greatest command? I mean, if he's trying to set a trap, the scripture tells us nothing of that. If he's trying to outfox Jesus, it doesn't say that. It just says it right here that he asked Jesus and Jesus said to him, loving God and loving neighbor as self, this is the highest and this is the great command. And this man, dejected, looks down and Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Why? Why in that moment of defeat does Jesus look at the man and say, you are not far from the kingdom of God? You can't do it. This man can't do it. In that defeat, in that moment of, I don't love God and I don't love people as I ought to, I can do religious sacrifices and burnt offerings, but that's not the command. That's not the high command. The high command, the great command is to love God and to love neighbor itself. And I don't have that in the tank. I can't get there. That's good. Because when you realize that you are insufficient, when you realize that you can't love God or people, you're in a moment of defeat. And in that moment of defeat, you're in the perfect place to call out to the one who has climbed the hill for you. He climbed Calvary's hill. He climbed the hill of death and he took my place on it. He took your place on it. And there he was crucified. He who had ascended perfectly, he who had done all things, always loved his father perfectly, always loved his na the neighbor as himself. He had never failed to do that. He ascended that for us, and then he ascended onto a cross, and he gave up his life for us. That defeat that I can't do it turns you to the one who can and has done it. When I came to faith in Christ, I remember feeling a sense that I needed to please God. I needed to do more. I needed to be better. I needed to love God. It was right that I should love God. I mean, if God had given his son on a cross for my salvation, it was right that I should love him, that I should give my life to him. And yet, I didn't have it in me. There wasn't an ability to turn noble inside. I felt this desire to barter with God, a sense that maybe if I started going to church, if I started reading the Bible, if I started praying, that this would be enough, or that if I stopped the immorality in my life, the anger and the, uh, all of the foolishness of my life, that these would be sufficient things for God to say, okay then, Robert, I'll accept what you've offered and I'll save you. And he didn't. 
Like he gave me no confidence that that was an even trade or that he would accept that. In brokenness, I came back to him and said, God, I, I don't know how to fix what's broken between us. I can't fix it. Will you save me? Will you fix me? And that day in March of 1988, he reached down and he saved me. He turned the lights on. <laughs> it was the most amazing thing in the world. I remember the first Easter. Um, there was a radio station in Dallas at the time. It's called KLTY. And they would play these songs on Easter morning. And this voice, with this real resonant, deep voice would come. And this guy would kind of read the passages of Scripture that correlated to the songs, speaking about the risen Christ. And I remember just waking up with such a love for God, just a deep love for God that I had not experienced before. Where did that come from? That came straight from his spirit coming to live inside of me, a man who couldn't fix himself, a man who needed a Savior and has a Savior. And the love of God is a foreign love that comes to live inside of you when you realize, I can't do this. I can't climb this. I can't aspire to this. You do realize, maybe, I hope you realize this, maybe you don't. Everywhere in the New Testament where the Bible speaks of religion, it speaks of it in a negative term. Except for James chapter 1, I believe it is. It says, true and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans in their distress it's the only place where it's seen in a positive light. But the idea is that religion is only a set of rules that you're supposed to follow. Some thou shalt and stop some thou shalt nots. And, and that's religion. And it's like climbing a staircase, trying to reach God with your own morality, with your own efforts. And it's not going to be enough. But when you have a Savior who gave his life on a cross so that you could be forgiven, oh man, believing in him creates a love creates a, it generates such a passion and a love for him. And friends, listen, it's not only that, my stupid thing, it's not only that, all of a sudden, a love for people, like, you know how it is when you love something deeply, and, and maybe I'm peculiar in this way, I don't know, I, I think I, th I probably am. When I love a particular restaurant, I just have to tell people about it. When I love uh, a certain video that makes me laugh, I have to share it. If I see a sunset that to me is beautiful, I've got to drag somebody over and look at it with me. A starlit night, same thing. A song that I love, a worship song. Like it just fills my heart. It's like God has just filled us with himself and we brim over the love of God to everybody. It doesn't matter what your sin pattern is. It doesn't matter what your particular rebellion is. You know, some of you, your struggle is that you are a glutton. Some of you, it's a struggle with anger. Some of you, it's a struggle with uh, immorality. Whether that immorality be heterosexual immorality or homosexual immorality, it really it doesn't even matter. That's the sin that you're struggling with. And God gives us a Savior for those of us who realize, hey, I can't love God perfectly and I can't love others perfectly. I can't even fix my own broken heart. God fix me. And he does through his son. There's a love that starts to pour out of us into this place that we're called to live in. Until we get to go home, we're called to live here with neighbors that don't know him, classmates who don't know him, coworkers who don't know him. 
And so we want to love people. We want to find ways to build relationships with the people all around us because God has put a love inside of us for them. And they're, they're like we are. They, they need a savior. Uh, they're a mess. They don't act and look and talk Christian. Okay, fair enough. We didn't either before he came to know us. Or maybe we did, but it was all, it was all just a pose. It was all of us just trying to fake so that we could please God by performing for him or hiding from him. The love of God comes and, get, and lays hold of our hearts. And that's why Jesus says to this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You and your broken state can turn to a savior who can save you. I love what it says here. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They kind of just said, yeah, he just silenced the Sadducees and a scribe. I'm not going to take him on. I'm not going to challenge him. Friends, I want you to hear this. We want you to know Jesus because we want you to be saved. We want you to know the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is better than your performance. He's better to you than a set of rules. He's your savior. He can and will save you. Anyone who turns to him, he'll save them. doesn't matter. You turn to him, he will take your sin. We also want you to believe the gospel. And that's a process that's just going to take time to believe the gospel. That I'm no longer on the treadmill of works. I don't have to be on this hamster wheel of running all the time to make God happy or to please people or to please myself. So you start to believe the gospel and it gives you rest. And friends, as that happens, you will begin to love people. You'll begin to love them. You'll feel a love for them because you'll see their brokenness. You'll see their loneliness and you'll know what they need is what you need. They need Jesus. And you happen to have the good news buried inside your heart. And so we want to love people. Creative ways to do that. Look, we're going to find that together. We're going to find ways to reach Georgetown as missionaries. We're going to find ways to, to, to invite people into our homes uh, for meals. We're going to find ways to do that as groups. We're going to find ways to go into the city and share the gospel. We're going to find ways to just look for the broken person that God has put you around that just needs a meal or a friend. They need someone to care about their lives. Listen, there's people moving here from all around the United States. The fastest growing community in the United States. And God has placed us here to preach the good news and to live out the good news and invite people into the kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ. 